Matthew 5, we are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and we are beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. It's the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So today, I think one of the big topics that we're kind of tackling in this text is the topic of justice. And let's re recap kind of real quick where we've been. We began with the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5. Those are those blessed are statements that sort of set the stage for this whole sermon and those somewhat strange statements told us that in Jesus' paradigm, a primary consideration is what he calls the kingdom of heaven. Each statement in the Beatitude said that certain types of people, like the meek, uh, those who are peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are actually blessed and that they will receive reward. And those, re those rewards included things like comfort and mercy. But one of the things you will notice there is that they are bracketed by the reward of receiving the kingdom of heaven. The idea of receiving the kingdom of heaven kind of, kind of dovetails or bookmarks each end of the Beatitudes. And this points to the fact that Jesus had primarily come preaching a gospel of the kingdom or good news of the kingdom. And so as we say often, Jesus' message and the message that he sent his disciples out to proclaim was, was not just a message about forgiveness of sins. It was a message that the kingdom of heaven was coming near in and through the person of Christ. And when you experience the kingdom of heaven, even if you get just a little taste of it, you experience something that is truly otherworldly. This is why Jesus, I think, can appear so strange and so otherworldly himself in his words and demeanor. Even though he is human and God, he does not operate 
in normal human ways. He doesn't seem to care what other people think about him. His goals seem to be different than everyone else around him. His responses seem to be different than everyone else around him. And what he and what we have said as we've walked through this is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus doing two things. One, he is showing us how extreme the values of the kingdom are in relationship to normal human values. We said that there is this extreme nature to this sermon, and that was somewhat normal for the way that Jesus spoke. Jesus also uh, often used extreme language. He would say things like, if you, like, you have to eat my body and drink my blood if you really want to come after me and follow me. Like you, you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor if you want to come follow me. Jesus was known to say things that made people go, Whoa, how in the world can anybody do this? And so there is that element on display here when he says things like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away because it's, it's better to do that than to let your whole body be thrown into hell because of sin. And it's extreme because he's comparing normal human thoughts and actions to the perfection of a holy God, right? So, so when you compare the way we normally operate to the perfection and, and, and holiness and eternality and ineffability of God, like the way of Jesus just appears so extreme and, and almost hyperbolic, like there's no intention on his part that we would ever actually do these things. And yet, what we believe is that, no, 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 one day you will be truly made new. And that one day you will truly be made holy. In this life, we are being sanctified. We are progressively taking steps in that direction. And then there will come a time when all things are made new. And we will see God and we will be like him in many ways. So the point here is not simply that we need to try harder. No, the point is that Jesus died and rose from the dead to give you what you could not attain for yourself. We said that through Christ's sacrifice, his holiness, his righteousness, it has been extended to you as this incredible gift, and it is by this gift that you are justified or made right before God. So, so the hyperbole of his speech is meant to lead you to abandon control to him. To recognize, I can't do this on my own. It, it, I'm incapable of this. It's impossible. I need a Savior, and I need His righteousness to be imparted to me, to be laid on top of me, to be imputed to me. I need that if I have any hope of in any way being made right before God. At the same time, though, we said He is also giving us an example of how we are to live in the light of of Christ. Jesus, throughout this sermon, is showing us what it looks like to be like him. And if he is our Lord and master, the goal of our lives, guys, should be to increasingly learn him and to increasingly seek to model and mimic and emulate him in our lives. I think this is what it means to be a disciple. You will hear me and other people say that to be a disciple is to be a learner. It's not simply about learning more about theology. It's really primarily about learning Christ, about learning Jesus. Who is Jesus? How did he live? What did he do? How do I pattern my life after him? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling us 
Here is what I am like. So this is invaluable content for us, right? Because it shows us how to be like Christ and what we are aspiring to. Let me say one more thing real quickly about the gospel of the kingdom. If you grew up in an evangelical church setting like I did, the gospel is often boiled down to primarily being about the forgiveness of sins. That the real good news of Jesus is that you were sick in your sin and you had no hope of healing yourself and Jesus came and died so that you could be freed from your sins. Now that is certainly true, but but here's the thing. If that was all there was to the gospel, it would be enough But in the Beatitudes, when Jesus is describing what blessing looks like, notice that he never says something like, blessed are the so-and-sos, for their sins will be forgiven. That's not something he ever says. No, he talks about people receiving the kingdom of heaven. He talks about people receiving receiving mercy and comfort. He talks about people being named sons of God. And here's the point. I think for a lot of people, the gospel is bigger than what you've been led to believe it is. The gospel is bigger than what you've been led to believe it is. And and the gospel is not that Jesus primarily came to just like clear out your sin rap sheet so that one day you can go to heaven when you die. I think if that's your view, your view is too small. No, his primary goal is that we would become sons and daughters of the king who exist eternally within the kingdom of the king, and the removal of our sin makes that possible. So the removal of our sin is not the end goal of Jesus' sacrifice. It is merely a step along the path of ultimately seeing us become sons and daughters of the creator of all things. Does that make sense? So the gospel we preach, the gospel that we preach in our lives, the gospel that we should be seeking to live, is is not just this gospel of moralism that says Jesus came to free you from your sins so that you can act right and be a good boy or girl. No, no, no. It's far bigger Jesus has come so that you can become royalty, so that you can sit at his table, so that despite your sin, you can become a beloved child of him. So so with that in mind, another way to think of this sermon is to think of it as a manual for kingdom life, as a manual for kingdom life. It seems strange because we do not fully live in the kingdom yet. We are immersed in this world still. We are still shaped and formed by the norms and the values and the culture of our world. But in Christ, we are seeking to shrug those things off. To use Paul's language, we're seeking to put off our old man and take on a new man. And, and there's more to that than just, I'm, 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 not, I'm seeking to not sin anymore, or I'm seeking to move past my sin, and I'm seeking to be a better person. No, no, no. It's I'm seeking to lose myself and become Christ, to take him on. I, I'm, I'm seeking to turn away from my old identity and to take on this new identity, which is not Weston, it's Jesus. 
Because this is the only way that I become a son of the king. I'm seeking to come to the end of myself and, and become a different person. So let's look at today's text with those things in mind. Today's text largely deals with the issue of justice. That may not seem, I think, apparent on the surface. Justice, though, is a supreme value within the kingdom of God. God is just, right? We say things like God is love. God is also just. God desires for his people to practice justice. So if we are seeking to emulate him, if we call ourselves followers of him, then justice should be something that is on our radar. And this is not a new concept. And just like all of this stuff that Jesus is teaching, it's not new. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, God's desire for the people of Israel was that they would reflect his heart for the world, the whole world, not just Israel, but for the whole world, and that they would treat other people, even non-Jews, justly. This was particularly true when it concerned people who were vulnerable. And so you may have heard me before talk about what some people will call the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. Over and over again, you hear about the poor and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. And it comes up so much that it's clear that God's desire for the people of Israel in the Old Testament was that they would be a light to the nations, right? You've heard this language? And, and part of that is that people who were vulnerable would be able to come to them and find hope and, and find mercy and comfort, like these things that we're talking about here. God's desire is that we would be the same kind of people, that in the way that he is just, in the way that he extends his grace to those who are vulnerable, like, like me and you, that we would seek to do the same thing. One of the most famous Old Testament verses concerning this topic is Micah 6.8. This is the kind of thing that you see people buy at Hobby Lobby in like really fancy script and hang on the wall of their home. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? So what does it mean to do justice? What does that look like in your life? Tim Keller, who has written extensively on this topic, says this. Doing justice means giving people their due. On the one hand, that means restraining and punishing wrongdoers. On the other hand, it means giving people what we owe them as beings in the image of God. So, in Keller's view, we all have inherent value that is not based on our personal level of goodness, but is based purely on the fact that we are made in the image of God. So, so here's the gospel. You were dead in your sin. You were guilty, but you were not worthless in the eyes of God. You were wrong. You were not worthless because you were made in his image. You were undeserving of his grace, 
But John 3.17 says that he sent his son Jesus into the world not to condemn you, but so that you might be saved. So think about the parable of the prodigal son, because I find that to be a really interesting parable to think about as we're reading through today's text. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. If you don't remember it exactly, what happens is there's a father and there are two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son comes to the father and says, I want what's due me. I want you to give me my part of the inheritance and I want to leave your house. I want to go live my life on my own. I don't want to be under your roof, under your control. I want to go do whatever I want to do. So he leaves, he squanders the wealth, on debauchery, and then he comes crawling back to the father. And what does the father do in the story? The father welcomes him with open arms. So so think about that story this morning as we're working through this. Is the wayward son, the younger son, is he guilty of dishonoring his father and doing debauched things? Absolutely. He is guilty. But he is not worthless to the father in the story, and he's not condemned by the father in the story. Instead, when he returns, he's not only forgiven, he's celebrated, and he's given riches. Now, now here's the thing. That is not fair. It's not fair. I think one of the things that we learn is that God is not operating based on our human concept of fairness, which is completely subjective. If God were fair, he would have destroyed us all a long time ago. Because that's what would be fair. That's what we deserve. But instead, he is just. And he defines what justice is. And in his definition of justice, there are things like love and mercy, and grace. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So listen, it is true that the Old Testament says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Israel was not the only ancient society to have such a law. Maybe if you remember back in history class, you heard about something called Hammurabi's Code, right? This is this uh, like ancient legal structure that possibly predated some of what we even read in Scripture. But we see that same terminology in the book of Deuteronomy. And what it's often known as is the Lex Talionis. It's the Latin word, which means the law of retaliation. Uh, It's Deuteronomy 19. You don't have to turn there. But the context in the law of Moses was the context of proportionality when it came to legal matters. In particular, in that section of Deuteronomy, Moses was teaching that it's not sufficient for one witness to make a claim against another person. So if I, if I just come out of the woodwork and say, hey man, this person did something terrible to me, 
my word alone is not enough to condemn that person. What Moses says is, no, there has to be more than one witness if some kind of a sentence or some kind of a judgment is going to be handed down. And when that sentence or judgment is handed down, it needs to be proportionate to the crime. So the intention of the lex talionis was to prevent abuse. So, so no one could be dragged into court based on the word of one person, and, and there couldn't be like undue retaliation or revenge carried out through disproportionate sentencing. But it's likely that people had taken this eye-for-an-eye mindset to an extreme and had applied it to the whole of life. And, and in doing so, were forsaking God's true heart, which is always biased toward forgiveness. So, so people had perhaps adopted this mindset where if you do anything to me, no matter how benign or how small, rather than forgiving you, I'm going to get what I'm owed, Right? I'm going to get what's due to me because of what you did. And here's the problem. That does not reflect the heart of God. Again, think about the prodigal son. Upon the son's return, the father could have said, listen, I love you, but you humiliated me in front of my family and my friends. You have dishonored the name of our family. You have squandered my hard-earned money. So I'm going to punish you for what you have done. So you're going to work manual labor for me in my fields until such a time as I decide that you've actually paid back what you owe me. But that's not at all what happens in that story. Had that been the thing that happened, I think many of us would read that and go, okay, that seems fair, right? Based on how he treated his father, the way that he squandered the wealth, and and, and just the sin in general that he was involved in. He comes crawling back to the father expecting that kind of sentence, doesn't he? He he has this whole speech prepared about, you make me like one of your servants. And that's not at all what the father does. Let's be clear, Jesus isn't talking here about not defending yourself against an attack or against an accuser. That's not the context. But people get tripped up when they read, do not resist the one who is evil. The prodigal son comes to the father with evil intentions. I'm going to take what's yours and I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. Prostitutes, alcohol, whatever. I'm going to go live that life. Those are evil intentions. And the father does not resist him. Father goes, here, here's your portion. Go live your life. This is what the Lord does with us. You have a free moral will. You want to run off into sin. He's not going to stop you. But he's always going to be waiting when you come back. And it's not simply because he loves you. It's because you are made in his image. Think about your own children. If you've seen my kids, you know that they are like made in my image, especially Emmy. It's like, good Lord, poor girl. You just look like your daddy, you know? So how can you look at your own child who looks like you and go, man, 
Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. First of all, nowhere does the Bible say that you should hate your enemy. That's completely untrue. You can't find that in the law of Moses. This is something that people had come to believe, but it wasn't biblical. It wasn't in the Torah. Um, this is an example, uh, not just of Jesus recontextualizing the law of Moses, but Jesus is debunking the claims that people were making about the law. The law does not validate your hatred of another person ever. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Again, the sole goal is not that your sins would be forgiven, even though they will. He doesn't say, love your enemies so that you will be worthy of my forgiveness. No, he says, do this because this is what I do. Do this because this is what I do. Remember, we are to become kingdom people who are living lives shaped by kingdom values, and kingdom values are shaped by the character of God. Turn with me real quick, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. By the way, quick commercial, uh, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to be starting the book of Romans. We'll wrap up the Sermon on the Mount the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, um, and then we will have Easter Sunday. And the next week we will start the book of Romans and we will be in the book of Romans for most of the last half of this year. Um, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. Romans 5. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Don't miss that. Part of the way that he is molding us into the image of Christ progressively is through suffering, is through having to live in this broken world as people who are now really citizens of another world. Does that make sense? So we are being shaped by bad things and by bad experiences and by traumatic moments. It goes on verse 4. Endurance produces, produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the righteous. He died for the unrighteous. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, notice that word. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So listen, don't forget, guys, 
There was a time, not only when you did not really believe in God, but when you were his enemy. The Bible paints this picture that it's this, you're either for us or you're against us. You're either with us or you're not with us. You may not have thought of yourself as an enemy of God. You may have thought of yourself as a skeptic, or you may have thought of yourself as just kind of nominal. But Scripture says, no, 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 you were his enemy. You were ungodly, because Jesus' righteousness had not been given to you. And even though that's how you were, even though you were deserving of death, he died for you. This is not a human value. This is not how we operate. This is a kingdom value. You can put in God we trust on your money. You can say one nation under God in the pledge. But there has never been a human nation state who has ever modeled a value that says we love our enemies. Right? You attack us, we attack you back. That's what we do. Right? You can't go... Letting those things be unanswered, right? No, we're much more eye for an eye people than we realize. We're terrible at letting things go. We're terrible at saying, even though you have wronged me, I forgive you. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's easy. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles, like those are the ungodly ones, the Gentiles. Man, they don't know anything about this. But yet even they care about the people they like and love. You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Or another way to say this is be holy for I am holy. Remember the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the thing, your enemy is your neighbor too. Your enemy is your neighbor too. You can't just say that your neighbors are only the people you like, or only the people you want to be with, or only the people you, who love you back. Because praise the Lord, God did not approach you in that way. We're about out of time, but real quick, verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So here's the thing, guys. What Jesus has done for us should revolutionize the way that we interact with other people. It should revolutionize the way that we see everybody. If we are seeking to emulate him, if we are truly seeking to to have our lives revolve around his gospel, it should call us and urge us and push us to be people who care about everybody, even if we think, man, like they're deserving of what they're getting in life because of what they've done, or even if we think, man, I like... I don't care for this person. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to have to deal with them. They're annoying to me. I don't like them. There should be something about what Christ has done for you that calls you out of that place and to go, I struggle with you, or you're challenging to me, or I don't like the things that you do in your life, but you are made in the image of God. 
And I do care that you get to experience what I've experienced in Christ. That you would also be a beloved son or daughter of the king who sits at his table and who dines with him and who learns what the gospel is about and who takes on the character of God. If we separate ourselves from the people that we don't need to be around because they don't know Christ and because they act like people who don't know Christ, then we are missing not only the gospel, but we're missing the mission that Jesus has sent us on, right? Jesus said, I haven't come for people who are well. I've come for the sick, and the sick are hard. The sick are challenging often, and yet we've been sent out among them. Sometimes, depending on the church culture you're in, it can seem like uh, you, you see these people who uh, have these radical conversion stories. They become believers. They were saved from drugs, alcohol, whatever the case may be. And, and so it's like, and so I need to separate myself as far away from those kinds of people as possible. And I get that. You don't want to be tempted by it. You don't want to be lured back into it. But yet at the same time, here is this huge group of people who, if we all separate ourselves from them, how are they going to hear the gospel? So here's the thing. You can either choose to just not hear this stuff and not seek it and not do it, or you can choose to be self-righteous in it. These are often the two extremes. Either I'm going to ignore the teaching of Jesus here, or I'm going to act like I'm the best at it. This is what he's getting at in this last section. I think the natural progression here is beware of practicing your righteousness. First of all, you don't have any righteousness, right? So beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. Because we are sinners, some of us will naturally take the teaching of Jesus and try to give off the impression to others that, that we do these things well. And most of us don't. In fact, I'm almost willing to say all of us don't, myself included. But we want to put on this air that we do so that other people will be impressed with us or think that we are pious or think that we are holy. This was the tendency of the Pharisees, and it was one of the big issues that Jesus had with them. He uses the word hypocrites here. Hypocrite is a like thoroughly Greek word, and, and it comes from the Greek theater. It comes from, you, you've probably seen, like, you've seen the drama masks, the, the laughing or smiling face and the sad face. So in Greek theater, they would wear these masks. It was a facade. It was meant to portray to you, the audience, what I'm feeling or what my emotions are, never mind what's actually happening behind the mask. That's where that word hypocrite comes from. So this is the word that Jesus uses. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be somebody who puts on a facade that says one thing when the reality is something completely different. Be real. Be real. Following Jesus is hard. Entering the kingdom of heaven is not based on your good work. So if you give off the impression that you are this paragon of superhuman righteousness, then one, you're projecting a lie to the world around you and to your neighbors. And two, you are not living a gospel of grace which says that we are not justified by our works but by Christ alone. 
We were talking earlier uh, when we had our little prayer time before worship about the fact that one of the big issues we see in the church today is that it's far easier for most of us to like put our faith in a leader, like a church leader, a pastor, a teacher, whatever, than it is to actually just put our faith in Christ. We can see that guy. I, I hear him every week, right? I see his life a little bit. And so it's, it's, we're far, we want to, man, I want an actual living, breathing person. It's easier for me to have faith in them than it is for me to have faith in Jesus. And, and unfortunately, what happens is we want to suspend reality with some of these guys, and, and, and we want to think that they don't have sin in their life, or we want to think that there aren't things that they struggle with, or that they are this paragon of superhuman righteousness, and they've moved past some of these things, and they're just not issues for them anymore. And then you couple that with the fact that many of them want to put on a facade that says those things are true, then when their sin gets found out and it becomes public, it not only brings them down, but it crushes people who put their faith in them. Be real. The devastation is far greater when you are not. Following Jesus is hard. Entering his kingdom is not based on your work. So let us not project a lie to the world around us. If I'm seeking to be righteous so that you will be impressed with me, not because I am so impressed with Jesus, or because I admire him so much, or because I worship him, it can be devastating. If I'm doing it in the hopes that you will be impressed with me, then I'm actually, I'm actually trying to remove worship from him and place it on myself. And that's deeply offensive to him because he says of himself in Exodus that he is a jealous God. And when worship, when worship goes anywhere else other than him, he's jealous for it. He desires it. He wants it. Also, last point. This is a whole other sermon for another day. But notice that uh, Jesus talks as if it is a foregone conclusion that you will provide for the needy in this last section. When you give to the poor, when you do these things, it's not if you do it. I'm going to stop there for today. Reflect on that a little bit. One of the things that is a historic Lenten practice is what in some cases could be called almsgiving, but it's actually an ancient practice there's something that God called the people of Israel to in a variety of ways, that they would care for the vulnerable and the poor. So something for you to reflect on as we enter into the season of Lent is what does it look like for you to in some way care for the, for the needs of others, to care for the needs of the vulnerable, whether it's the poor or it's widows or it's orphans or it's people in your context who you know have some kind of need. Is it giving money? Is it giving clothing? Is there a way that you could bless others? in this Lenten season? Is it possible that you put on blinders and you're just not seeing those things and your eyes need to be open to what's happening around you and the ways that your resources could be used to make the lives of someone else better? What does that say about Christ when you do that? What does that say about the beauty of his kingdom and the beauty of his gospel when you do things like that? I can think of far few, uh, there aren't many things that we could do that are better than that. Um, in this season. So let's go to him in prayer, reflecting on those things this morning.